This is Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. We share a more in-depth take on the most popular stories from our print magazine, showcasing the territory's extraordinary people, culture, and outdoors. I'm your host, Karen McCall. They fly through the night, preying on human blood. Actually, not at all. Yukon's little brown bats do not drink blood, human or otherwise, except maybe indirectly through all the mosquitoes they eat, because little brown bats can eat up to 600 of them in an hour. That's just one of the interesting facts that Rhiannon Russell recently learned. She wrote about bats for the winter issue of Yukon North of Ordinary magazine. I got the chance to speak to Rhiannon about what she discovered during her forays into the woods, but... I started by asking her why she was curious about bats in the first place. Um, I was working on a story uh, in 2020 for another magazine about endangered animals in the Yukon. And um, bats were one of the ones that was a researcher I was talking to mentioned it in one of my preliminary interviews for that story. And bats in the Yukon did not make it into that feature. Um, but yeah, so I came across all of this interesting information about them and wanted to write about them um, and thought it would be a fit potentially for Yukon North of Ordinary. So had you had any personal encounters with bats before that? So yes. Um, when I was growing up, my sister and I were playing in the basement of our house. Um, we were kids and um, a bat f- was in the basement and flew, um, kind of down at us at the time. It felt like I was, it was dive bombing us, um, which I've since learned bats do not intentionally do that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and we screamed and raced upstairs and my parents had to, you know, hire somebody to get, get rid the of the bats. Bat. Right. The house. Where yeah. did you grow up? Um, in Southern Ontario in Hamilton. Okay. Did you develop a fear of bats after that? No. Cause I never saw them. Like that was, it was kind of this random um, encounter. And they're around, I've since learned, because of the escarpment in Hamilton. So I think they kind of roost in little pockets in the cliffs. But no, have never really thought about them since. Okay. Yeah, yeah we'll talk more about their their roosting and what that is. But um, how, how did you go about uh, getting information for this story? I understand you went to a bat viewing evening put on by the Yukon government? Yeah. So the government does these wildlife viewing events for the public. And I just came across one on Facebook for bats. Um, so yeah, my partner and I went one night in August and it started at about nine o'clock. Um, at night. Yeah. Okay. Cause they come out only at night. They okay. sleep during the day. So yeah. So the event was from about nine to 11 PM. Um, so we, we went out, um, and met at Chadburn Lake in Whitehorse where there's a bat house, um, where they, like a colony lives there in the summer. And sorry, what does the bat house look like? It's just like a cabin. Yeah, I think it. I think at one time it was a cabin that humans used, but okay. it has since been. Um, I don't know if the bats took it over, but it is strictly for bats now. Seriously? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. It, can you go in the house? Like, is there bat guano everywhere? There is. We didn't okay. go inside. We just stood out front, and okay. you could see all the bat poop on the front deck. Um, and yeah, there's a door that with no handle or anything. Like it's been adapted for them to just kind of live there undisturbed. Okay. I think I've actually, like when I was canoeing, stopped at that cabin and walked up and then kind yeah. of been like, oh, I don't think I want to go in there. So that's yeah. good to know. That's a bad house. I think there's two or three in the area and some are still used by humans, but that one in particular is not anymore. Okay. Okay. So what happened at this viewing night? Yeah. So we walked from the parking lot, um, maybe a kilometer 
into the house. And we also, there's only, um, I guess seven of us there plus the biologist. Um, so we stood out front and she gave kind of a spiel on Yukon bats and interesting facts about them. Um, she had a bat costume that she put on, which was a nice touch. Uh, and then we just waited for them to come out and she didn't know how many would be inside, but she said, usually dusk, you know, they'll start coming out one at a time. Um, she said that you can sometimes start to hear them squeaking as they wake up, that they sound like mice. I wasn't able to hear, but uh, yeah, so we just kind of stood there in the almost dark and looked up at this little opening in the roof. And yeah, one flew out and it's so, they're so fast. Like it's a split second. You could blink and miss it. Um, but you know, we were all like, oh my gosh. And it was pretty cool. And, uh, and then, yeah, over the next maybe hour, there were 13 or 15 bats that came out slowly. And they don't make any sound as they go out. No, they just shoot out. And a couple of them kind of lingered in front of the group for, you know, a couple seconds and, Mm -hmm. and, but then they were gone and, you know, you're surrounded by forest. So they just disappear almost right away. Okay. So they're sleeping by day and there, is it like they're hanging upside down in their roost? That's right. Okay. And then what are they going out to do uh, at night? To eat, to eat madly. Um, yeah, it's, they have this really small window in the Yukon because of our midnight sun in the summers. So, um, yeah, so they have, you know, I think at, at peak summer, like three hours to kind of get out, eat all the mosquitoes, um, and sometimes spiders and moths that they can, um, kind of ingest all those calories and then go back and sleep, um, once daylight comes. Right. And why, why is it they're just going out at night to do that? They're nocturnal. So, um, that's just how their, their routine is structured. So at this bat viewing night, what, what kind of interesting facts did the biologist share with you? Yeah, so she had brought, in addition to her bat costume um, that she kind of reluctantly put on, uh, <laughs> she brought a slinky, a metal slinky, so we could hold it up to our ear and let it go. And the sound of it hitting the ground kind of is is similar to bats' um, echolocation, which we can talk more about. Oh, so it was okay. just for us to get a sense of what they hear. So the slinky is going from your ear, like all the way to the ground, like yeah. several feet. Okay. Yeah. So you just hold it up and then drop the other end and oh. it springs down and hits the ground. Okay. So that was neat. And sorry, so echolocation. Yeah. Well, let's just talk about echolocation sure. now. What is that? Yeah. So um, it's basically how they navigate at night in the dark when they travel. So they... Um, emit these sounds that are very high frequency that we cannot hear. And the um, sounds bounce off objects, trees, bugs, and then reverberate back to the bats. So that's how they can tell like, oh, there's a tree here, better change direction. Or, oh, there's a some prey on this branch that I want to eat. Okay. So it's not like they can see in the dark necessarily. Not particularly well, I don't think. They're not blind, um, which is a misconception, but... Um, yeah, just because it's dark and it's hard to see. So the whole time they're flying, they're letting out these sounds that we can't actually hear. Yeah. And they're just listening to how they echo off them. Yeah, exactly. Wow, okay, super interesting. Yeah. And so the slinky replicates the, I guess, the echoing sound of something. Yeah, that they hear. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, what else did the the bat lady uh, share with you? Um, so she brought in a Ziploc bag two quarters and we could hold the quarters and that is the weight of one of these, the typical weight of one of these bats. Oh, so wow. they're very small, very light. Um, yeah, it was neat to 
have some kind of comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, and like size-wise, would they be sort of like the size of a fist or smaller than that? Um, I think even smaller than that. Right, yeah. I just saw that the photos in the articles. Yeah, they're not yeah. like these huge, massive size no, bats. No, especially these ones. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty little. And you wrote also that the ones that you were seeing fly out of the roost are mostly females because the females yeah. roost together? That's right, yeah. So they roost in these, in sometimes pretty big colonies. Um, and that's where they have their young and raise their young. And then the male bats, there's a lot less known about them. Um, so in the Yukon, I don't think biologists really know where they roost, but it's believed um, that they hang out in a lot smaller groups. So maybe like 10 or 15 bats. And I guess we should clarify, um, mostly we're talking about little brown bats, aren't mm-hmm. we? Right. Yeah. Okay. That's the species that's most widespread in the Yukon. Um, anything else from the bat night that you want to mention? I think I just didn't expect to be so kind of enchanted by them coming out. Like it was a lot more exciting than I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really neat. And then you kind of didn't want to leave, um, you know, like the event winded down and we had to walk back to the parking lot, but it was like, well, there might be more in there and they might be coming <laughs> out and I want to see it happen. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> yeah. So uh, where else did your bat research take you? Uh, so I also um, got in touch with the Department of Environment with the Yukon government and they do research every summer on Yukon bats. So I wanted to go out with them um, to kind of see what they do and shadow them for mm-hmm. a day. So I followed two um, researchers who were heading out into McIntyre Creek in Whitehorse to um, uh, take out, basically remove audio files from these microphones that they had put up to um, record bats' echolocation and try to learn about their movements along the creek. Is there different sounds that the bats make depending on their activities? Yeah. So that's something that's that's pretty interesting that um, the department told me is that, yes, they when they're traveling through an area, um, the sounds that they make are a lot more spaced out in time. Um, but then when they're feeding, they get this kind of increased, yeah, they're, they're more heightened, I would say. And so there's more of a lot more of these noises going out like per second per millisecond and because they're trying to narrow in on their food um so yeah the the biologist who i spoke to for the story he said it's like a feeding buzz that's what they call it Mm. so it's like a lot more of these um sounds when they feed okay so they can tell what kind of activities they're doing in certain areas and maybe like how many bats are in the area and that sort of thing for population and behavior studies yeah i don't know about um the quantity necessarily but Mm -hmm. definitely um, when researchers are trying to figure out how bats use certain areas, this is a really helpful tool. Of course, so we can't hear those sounds, but they can plug it into some sort of computer system and analyze it that way. Yeah. So they have, yeah, software that would, will helps to classify kind of all of these, um, different noises. And I understand a lot of, uh, bat research with well, the hands-on bat research anyways, also happens quite late at night. Yeah, it does. Um, so they, I was told for this story that, um, because of COVID they last summer and this summer, they weren't doing the hands-on, um, work because interestingly enough, there's some fear about passing COVID onto bats. So yeah, they haven't been doing the live capturing program, but how that works is, um, kind of like how we did for this bat viewing event. They go out at night when the bats are coming out of their, wherever they're roosting and they, um, capture them in a net 
and um, handle them wearing like thick leather gloves um, <laughs> to prevent getting bit. And yeah, they band bats' wings, they measure them, they see how many are pregnant. And yeah, it's a way to gauge kind of the health of the population. You had a quote there from the senior government biologist, Tom Zhang, about being happy that bats don't weigh 10 pounds because he said they're pretty feisty when they're doing that work on them. Yeah. Yeah. Both he and um, Heather Milligan, the biologist I followed along the creek, they have both done these live captures and they both kind of talked about it um, with some humor where they're like, some of these creatures are just squawking and screeching and... uh, yeah, are just kind of like, how dare you be handling me right now? <laughs> yeah. And they have very sharp teeth. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so it sounds kind of like a party, all of these biologists up late at night, right. dealing with these bats, trying to be as kind of expeditious about it as possible. You you said your bat event, you were there from 9 to 11, but I think the bat researchers are some, like working at like 2 and 3 in the morning sometimes. Yeah, because so. it can take a while to process all of the information that they need. So, yes, very late nights. Time for a short break. We'll be right back. Do you have a Yukon North of Ordinary hoodie yet? What about a t-shirt? A toque? Mug? Check out the full product line at the retail store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. Limited products can also be ordered from northofordinary.com. And while you're there, don't forget to pick up a magazine subscription. And now back to the episode. And I guess we should mention, um, I guess you said bats have teeth, but they don't like... (laughs) They don't bite humans, these little brown bats, generally. Like, I mean, if you're not handling them. (laughs) Yeah. If you're not kind of messing with bats, like they don't, they're not interested in um, messing with humans. Right. But yeah, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, if you're trying to pick them up or whatever, they might bite defensively. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, How come, so the, and the banding, I guess that's just, if so, if a bat comes back in the future years, like they've got information about that particular bat. Okay. Yeah. I know for some animals, they put like microchips in them and they can follow their locations remotely. Um, Are they doing that with bats? No. um, What I was told was that a lot of the um, technology that's used for other animals like bison or other animals that are studied in the Yukon, um, it just isn't small enough yet Mm. for bats. So they're a trickier animal to study for that reason, um, where you have to really like be in the forest when they're waking up to capture them and, mm-hmm. you know, document information, or you put up these microphones in the forest and get information that way. But yeah, it's, it's more complicated than for other species for sure. Why is it uh, important to study bats in the Yukon? Yeah. So what I learned is that bats are an indicator species. So by studying them, you can learn more about um, how the whole ecosystem is doing, which I thought was kind of interesting and unexpected. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, sure. So by them being an indicator species, um, they indicate kind of the health of the greater ecosystem. So, you know, insect populations, um, bug populations. Tom Jung also told me that what's bat habitat is also sometimes really good habitat for owls or woodpeckers. So you can kind of use them as a gauge for how how other species in that area might be doing. So there's a lot that uh, researchers are learning about bats in the Yukon, but I guess there's still some unknowns, like apparently uh, they migrate? Yeah, they're really interesting because they both migrate and hibernate. Um, So they do not spend winters in the Yukon, um, but scientists don't really know where they go, Mm. uh, which is one of the mysteries. Um, They think probably somewhere on the Pacific coast, like maybe Alaska, maybe BC, but... They don't know. In theory, somewhere a little bit warmer, I guess. Yeah. 
So when are they hibernating like before they go south? Do we know when they hibernate? Yeah, they hibernate. So they're um, in the Yukon, I believe from, I think like May, and then they leave in maybe end of August, beginning of September. Like once the temperature starts to dip here, they don't like the cold. So that's when they'll fly south. Um, and then they hibernate. Wherever, of, they wherever they go. Okay. Yeah. And also by being banded, maybe researchers in other places, if they're studying bats and see a banded bat, then we, we would know that, hey, that's where this bat ended up for the winter. It's true. Yeah. I think it could help connect the dots. Yeah. So we've mentioned Tom Zhang a couple of times. Uh, it sounds like he's pretty interested in studying bats. Yeah. He really likes bats. He's the senior wildlife biologist at the Yukon government. And yeah, we had a great chat about bats. He's very passionate about them. I think we could have talked for probably a lot longer than we did. Because I, as I talked to him, I got more and more interested in them as well. But yeah, he talked about uh, a lot of these mysteries kind of that still exist about bats, kind of scientific curiosities about the animal um, and that he just finds really both personally and professionally like really fascinating. Uh, one of the interesting things that uh, you also wrote in your article that Tom Jung had told you is that uh, bats are mammals, uh, and but they also fly, which is, that's unusual for mammals, right? Yeah, they're the only mammal that can fly. Um, and actually, one of the kind of trick questions at the bat event that I went to was, um, what other mammal can fly? And the answer is none, but there's a flying squirrel, which doesn't technically fly, it glides. So yeah, bats are... Yeah, they're just really interesting. They're a mammal that can fly. They have thumbs. Oh, what? Which I didn't know. Um, I think another really interesting thing about them, too, is people often, I think, kind of associate them with mice or think, oh, they're kind of Mm -hmm. rodent-like, but they're not. And where mice live one or two years, um, bats are really long-living, like sometimes 30 or 40 years. Wow. Yeah. And they reproduce really slowly, like maybe one pup every year, every other year. Right. Okay. Which if their population was threatened could be hard because they wouldn't replenish the population very quickly. Exactly. Yeah. They're really susceptible to um, population hits from habitat loss or disease. What is the status of of bats in the Yukon, of little brown bats? In the Yukon, um, as far as we know, their populations are healthy. In Canada, though, they're endangered. So that I think kind of lends even more importance to studying them here and making sure that populations here are doing well. The reason for the endangered status is this um, disease called white nose syndrome that bat populations across North America, um, it's showing up in them. And it's this white fungus that appears on their nose and it causes them to do really weird things like waking up during hibernation, flying in, you know, cold, colder climates, flying during the day, waking up and flying during the day when they could be easy prey for hawks or other birds of prey. So flying at night also, yeah, keeps them safer from their Yeah. Predators. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So there is no white nose syndrome in the Yukon yet, but people think it's kind of only a matter of time till it's here. It was just maybe a month ago I saw an article about it had been discovered in, I think it was Saskatchewan for the first yeah. time. So is it, it's moving east to west, Yeah, it came from the east. Um and it's in Washington State now, too, I've read. So it is kind of encroaching. Can humans get rabies from bats? Is that a concern? N- not more so than any other wild animal. There is this kind of association that like bats and rabies. But I did look up some stats on this. So since 1925, there's only been five cases in Canada of 
um, rabies contracted from bats, and none have been in the Yukon. Okay. So they're not more full of rabies than any right. other wild animal. And because bats aren't, in theory, going to, like, come and, like, bite us, like, it should be fairly low risk, I right. guess. Yeah. yeah. If you're not going right into a, a bat roost. Yeah. Um. So apart from this bat cabin you visited, like, where else do bats live? Where might people see them? Yeah, so there's a few... Um, houses in the Yukon that the government has set up. So there's mm-hmm. the one at Chadburn Lake I mentioned. There's um, one at Squanga Lake, Pine Lake. Um, but then other than that, they I have heard they also like to roost um, in the cliffs along Miles Canyon in Whitehorse. Um, yeah, any kind of, I mean, caves we don't really have here, but in other regions, um, they will live in caves. Also, um, cabins or houses mm-hmm. or sheds. Um, I'm sure some people have encountered that kind of anywhere that's warm where, yeah, they can kind of tuck into spaces. They are really small, like we've said, and they can fit into holes the size of a quarter. Oh my gosh. So, so they're not claustrophobic. No, but they, yeah, they kind of live in these colonies, like all piled on top of each other too. So no, they really like to be close to each other for warmth and in kind of small nooks and crannies. Also anywhere when the sun comes up that warms. Mm, like um, so south, south facing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, and I guess sometimes they're building like these elevated bat houses too. Like people yeah. can build those on their properties and things like that. Yeah. So one of the things that the Yukon government, um, has done to kind of help the relationship between uh, people and bats is bat building workshop. So they've done some at Uconstruct in Whitehorse and uh, on their website, they have like a plan essentially that you can print off to make okay. your own, your own bat house. Yeah. Oh, okay. And is it kind of like a birdhouse size or bigger? Um, the ones that I've seen are pretty um, like not very wide. Okay. So like kind of tall and skinny more mm-hmm. so. Um, cause they just will kind of all pile in there on top of each other. So if someone does have bats in their attic and they, like they, maybe they don't want the bats on their property. Like, is there a, is there a good way to discourage them to, or to get rid of them? Yeah. So, um, this is one thing also that the government is trying to kind of educate people about because their populations are so delicate or fragile, I guess, is that if you have bats and want to evict them as most people would, I think. They do advise kind of waiting until after the pups are born. Is that the spring or summer? I guess? Um, it's in the summer. Okay. Yeah. And so just kind of being careful about disrupting because it's while they're in the Yukon in the summer, it's a critical time. Mm-hmm. Like they're having their young, they're trying to feed a lot. Right. Um, but there are some ways that you can deal with them. One of the ways, which actually my mom told me this is what we had okay. to do at our house. Um, you can uh, have... I think a company probably you'd want to go with, but they um, insert this kind of screen um, at the entrance point, however the bats are getting in the structure, mm-hmm. and then they can fly out through it, but it they can't come back in. Oh, it's kind of okay. like a one-way right. screen type thing. Okay. So that's a good way to do it with minimal harm to right. bats. I guess the other way would just be to wait for them to um, not hibernate, to migrate, and then like sealing off your space, whatever space yeah, they've been in. Exactly. If you can wait that long. Yeah. But really like it's maybe not a bad thing to have bats somewhere on your property because they can eat a lot of mosquitoes. Yeah. So this is another thing that um, I really like about bats because I get eaten alive here every summer. By mosquitoes. Um, yeah, by mosquitoes. And uh, they, yeah, bats will eat um, up to 600 mosquitoes wow. an hour. Okay. So they are, yeah, huge mosquito 
um, killing machines. That which is, is so really good nice to know. for us yeah. humans. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, that that could do some good good <laughs> good work. Yeah. For controlling them. Yeah, and I think the government is trying to kind of play that up too because you know, we think of like, oh yeah, no one would want bats in their home, but having them on your property, you know, if you put up a bat house, um, mm-hmm. a nice habitat for them, there are perks to having them around. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about bats? I think just that we, we talked a little bit about some of the myths about bats. Um, the drinking, the drinking human blood oh, is right. kind of a pervasive one too. Um, and I, did want to mention that um, no species in Canada drinks blood at all. I don't know. I think that's kind of like Dracula. Yeah, <laughs> there is. Yeah, there's some. Is there a bat in South America? I think I Googled this after your article. So. Be like, is there a bat that drinks blood? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think there probably is because I think there's over a thousand species um, oh, wow. all over the okay. world. So and they range in size like it's pretty they're pretty different depending on where you are. But yeah, none of the ones in Canada drink blood or human blood. The little brown bat does have a pretty friendly name. Yeah. Yeah. There's not too much to be afraid of with the LBB. No. Great. Well, thank you so much for doing this research uh, for the story and coming in today to tell me about it. It's super interesting. Thanks for having me. After my chat with Rhiannon, I got the lowdown on vampire bats. And yes, that's what they're called. They live in Mexico and further south, and they mostly drink the blood of pigs, cows, and birds. Apparently, they will sometimes drink human blood, but it's rare. The good news is that according to National Geographic Kids, vampire bats latch on to their prey and drink their blood for 30 minutes without hurting them. That might be reassuring, but still, I'm not sure I need a vampire bat latching on to me. Good thing we don't need to worry about that in the Yukon. Just frostbite and cold-related things. That's it for this episode of Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print magazine by going to northofordinary.com. While you're there, check out Yukon North of Ordinary merchandise. For a full product line, visit the Bricks and Mortar store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. There's a great selection of hats, stickers, clothing. I love my hoodie. Do you have something you'd like to say about this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Facebook, North of Ordinary Media. You can also email me, editor at northofordinary.com. And just a reminder, I'm Karen McCall. Thanks to the whole team at North of Ordinary Media. Special thanks to art director Manu Kegenhoff. Our music is by Head Candy and tribeofnoise.com. Thanks for listening. We'll have another episode coming out next week. I hope you listen in. Listen in.